So we'll continue into uh, class seven, <clears throat> Christ as priest, consecrated as mediator for God's people. So we're working through uh, Richard Belcher Jr.'s book. <clears throat> it's a really, really good book, Prophet, Priest, and King, The Roles of Christ in the Bible and, and, our, and our roles today. So if you haven't gotten a chance to pick it up, it's a would highly recommend it. It's really, really helpful. Um, this book, along with uh, another book by uh, Benjamin Glad, I've primarily been using for this study. Benjamin Glad's book is um, from, I think, from Adam and Eve to the church, or Adam and Eve to Israel to the church, something. So it follows some of these same same things, but both have been really helpful. <coughs> now. <clears throat> Just an opening, sort of get our minds in some right categories here. During Jesus' time, people thought he might be a prophet, I think based off of his miracles. So they would see his miracles and attribute it or remember Old Testament prophets and say, okay, he's doing something that looks like what, what they were doing. So I think they had categories for Jesus as a prophet. And then some were also looking toward and anticipating this Davidic king. And so I think there was, um, in the minds of some, this anticipation and looking to this king that would come to redeem, provide for, protect a people. But what do you think about Jesus' priestly role? Do you think that there were, uh, his, th- that his contemporaries were looking at Jesus and thinking, okay, he's filling, fulfilling some type of priestly role? Well, what comes to mind for you when you think about Jesus as a priest? Is that a category that you have often? What are some ideas that that come to mind for you? It's an open question. Or maybe you haven't thought about Jesus as as priest often. what, What comes to mind for you? Okay. And, um, yeah, and now he continues to <clears throat> he, he, he continues to uh, um, plead for us to the Father. Yep. On, on our behalf. Right. So those are the things that we All right. So, yep, his offering himself as a sacrifice, that aspect of. Uh, priestly responsibilities, and then he's interceding for us now. Yep. I was just about to say that. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't think of the word. Interceding for us. Yep. Yep. Right. He's interceding for us. That comes. That comes to mind for me too. What else? Do you think people often think about Jesus as a priest? In his earthly ministry, you think that's a category that comes to mind often for us? Right. Yep. And the prophet. Yeah, I, th- yeah. I think that's probably true. Um, prophet, king, priest. Because um, I think some of those categories for priests that we think about in the Old Testament, it's hard for us to see the connection with, with Christ. Some are, I think, probably more obvious, and then some are not as clear. 
Well, Ian <clears throat> Merrill is an Old Testament scholar. He said that, and quote, the gospels are virtually silent with respect to any priestly aspect of Jesus' messianic office. Now, when I first read that, I had to think about it for a sec. And while I might not agree completely with that, that statement, it is interesting that Jesus' identity as a priest is not mentioned explicitly until after his resurrection and ascension. And Richard Belcher, again, our author of the book that we're working through here, he gives a few reasons why that might be the case, why um, Jesus specifically being mentioned as a priest isn't until after his resurrection and ascension. So Belcher says, first, Jesus wasn't a Levi, but from the tribe of Judah. As it concerns his earthly life, he would have that that rather would have kept him from ministering as a priest in the temple in Jerusalem. I think that's interesting. Secondly, he says, and probably more importantly, Jesus' lineage is of a higher order than the earthly line of Levitical priests. That's because Jesus will serve as priest in the heavenly temple. And then third, Jesus doesn't just fulfill the Old Testament priests, he transforms them. He's not just proclaiming the word given to him from God, which he does, but not just that, but Jesus is the word himself. He is the word of God himself. He is the power to transform people. Jesus' deity transforms these offices as he fulfills them. So the priestly ministry of uh, Christ transforms the office of priest from what from its sort of makeup and identity in the Old Testament. The priestly office was really commanded in the Old Testament, commanded and reserved for Israel and the Levites. <clears throat> Turn to Deuteronomy 4.20. We're going to look at a couple passages in Deuteronomy and then we'll jump to 1 Peter. So Deuteronomy 4.20. Let me have someone read that verse for us. Whoever gets there first, nice and loud. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of of the iron furnace out of Egypt to be a people of his own inheritance, as you are this day. Okay, so that language, note that language there. People of his own inheritance. Now jump over to Deuteronomy 14.2. Deuteronomy 14.2. I'm going to look at pieces of each of these verses and then show something in the New Testament that's really interesting. So Deuteronomy 14.2. Who's there? All right, go for it. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Okay, so note the language there in Deuteronomy 14, 2. The Lord has chosen you a people to be a people for his treasured possession. Right? He's speaking of Israel here. And then he would establish later on in the Levitical line those priests through Israel. But notice that language there. Chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Now, in Christ, this is just a couple of places where we see this language. There are, there are many more, but for the sake of time, we'll just look at those two. In Christ, this office is open and it's expanded, the office of priest. <clears throat> it's transformed. 
Turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. We'll read that, read that together. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. Okay, let me have someone read that verse for us. Like newborn infants for the pure spiritual milk, that by it may grow up to salvation. Oh, <clears throat> that's a great verse. Oh, but that's I wrote down the wrong oh. verse. <laughs> that was my fault. First Peter one one. Although that is one of my favorite verses. <laughs> uh, First Peter uh, one one. Sorry. No, I said 2-1. Sorry, oh, okay. that, that, that was my fault. First Peter 1-1. One, um, one. That's it. Yep. Okay, so <clears throat> who is Peter writing to here? He's writing to who? We see that elect exiles of the dispersion from all these different places, uh, Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. He's, he's writing to these elect exiles. Now, go down a few uh, chapter to 2 Peter 2, verse 9. Go to chapter 2, verse 9. Now, listen to the language in, second, in, in 1 Peter 2, 9 that he uses of these elect exiles of the dispersion. <clears throat> In 1 Peter 2, 9, he says, but you elect exiles of the dispersion from Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, but you are a, what? Chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, remember what, what we just read in Deuteronomy 14, too. It uses the same language, a treasured possession, uh, this holy nation, these, these people of God. All right, so if we uh, let scripture interpret scripture for us, we're seeing something that's happening here and an identity that was only applied to Israel and even the Levites in the Old Testament, that same identity, those same clothes are given to elect uh, exiles, Christians, believers, saints from all these different places. It is interesting, again, that Peter talking to dispersed non-elect Christians can call them a royal priesthood. The Old Testament identity reserved, again, for Israel and the Levites. And the New Testament is given to elect Jews and Gentiles. So the Old Testament priestly office was fulfilled in Christ as the great high priest. And Jesus, as the great high priest, has made a people of priests. And so in Christ, this office is expanded. It's transformed. It's given a new identity because it was always ever about Christ as the high priest. It was never merely about the Old Testament priests and Israelites and Israel, people of Israel, but it was all pointing to and building to Christ, the fulfillment of this office. 
In 1 Peter 2, 5, it says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up into or as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So 1 Peter 2, 5, again, affirms that the people of God, the Christian, we are uh, the priesthood of God. We are a holy priesthood because of our union with Christ. <clears throat> so the Bible is, is, is clear on that. Now, let's jump down to the next section on your handout, the earthly ministry of Jesus and the Old Testament priesthood. The earthly ministry of Jesus and the Old Testament priesthood. That first uh, sub subheader, consecrated to God's service. <clears throat> now, Belcher reminds us that just because Jesus uh, isn't called priest explicitly during his earthly ministry, that does not mean that uh, Jesus' life and works weren't referring to Old Testament priests and priestly roles. Old Testament priests were set apart in a few different ways. One was that they were set apart um, by their priestly lineage through Aaron. Jesus was set apart after the order of who? Do you remember that mysterious figure? Melchizedek, right? One set apart, or Levites after Aaron, Jesus after Melchizedek. Now, he's a somewhat mysterious figure in Scripture. Uh, Mary is pregnant with the Holy Spirit or by the Holy Spirit. Her virgin birth safeguards the deity and the humanity of Christ. Right? So uh, just miraculous to, to think about the birth of Christ um, and these uh, two natures, divine nature, his human nature. Right? The uh, hypostatic union is it's preserved through this virgin birth, right? So if he were born of ordinary generation, he would have inherited Adam's guilt and Adam's sinful nature. When I say ordinary generation, I mean not by the Holy Spirit. If he were born by ordinary generation, he would have inherited Adam's sin and guilt. <clears throat> and he would have thus been unable to save anyone because someone with a sinful nature can't save anyone. But his human nature confirms his ability to atone for man's sin. So he also had to be human, right? Because we see later on in Hebrews that the blood of bulls and goats can't take away the sins of men, right? So he's born of the Holy Spirit, also born human, because only man can atone for man's sin and only one of a divine nature can atone and take the divine wrath of God, right? Okay, so jumping down. So we're thinking about Jesus as priest and, his, and, and the fulfillment of the office of, of priest. The atone, the, the anointed one, the anointed one. The Old Testament priests were consecrated for service to the Lord also by the garments that they, they wore. Also, uh, them being anointed with the oil was associated with the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. So kings anointed with oil and temporarily empowered by the Holy Spirit, you would see that in the Old Testament. It was to fulfill 
uh, an office, uh, a, a service. Uh, you see this with David, where he's, uh, he's anointed with oil, which is a picture of uh, temporary for, uh, filling or unique endowment of the spirit. I'll put it like that. Um, Jesus is filled with the spirit in Isaiah 61.1. You want to turn there and we'll, we'll read that together. Isaiah 61.1. So again, Old Testament kings, prophets, even were anointed with oil, um, which was a picture of uh, a unique endowment of the Holy Spirit. And then Isaiah 61, 1. Let me have someone read that for us. Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Okay. So you see the same language in the Old Testament. Speaking of this one who is to come to do these miraculous things, uh, to complete this mission, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives. And it starts by saying, the spirit of the Lord has anointed me. So the anointed in the mind of the Old Testament Jew, and even in the the New Testament, would have brought them back to king, prophet even, uh, priestly uh, roles, because this anointed was associated with oil, which pointed to the Holy Spirit. Um, in Luke one thirty-five, it says, uh, even from a young boy, the spirit, uh, uh, the spirit caused the boy Jesus to be, to be holy. <clears throat> I'll turn there and read that quick. Luke one And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So from birth, so Jesus didn't, he didn't become um, spirit endowed or filled simply at baptism that was uh, that that pointed to something that was a, an, a, a unique and uh, filling endowment of the spirit which pointed to his fulfillment of these different offices but even from from birth he was uh, of the spirit filled with the spirit the spirit as Jesus close companion was with him in his baptism which I just mentioned Matthew 3:16 we see that Luke 4 1 I just preached on this couple weeks ago, the spirit led him into the wilderness to be tested. Uh, Mark says it drove him into the wilderness to be tested. It's by the spirit that he offered himself without blemish. Hebrews 9, 14 says Jesus offered himself without blemish by the spirit. So the spirit was the companion of Jesus throughout his earthly ministry. Throughout his, his life, he did his miracles by the spirit, casted out demons by the spirit. Jesus humility is even displayed as he entrusted himself to the father and was dependent upon the power of the spirit 
to do his, his work. Right, so it is, it's an example for us, dependence upon the Holy Spirit. The Spirit as Jesus' close companion was always with him. <clears throat> Jesus identified himself as the anointed one who fulfills Isaiah 61.1. Remember, he goes into the temple and he opens up the scroll and he reads it. And he says, today this has been fulfilled uh, before you. <clears throat> so Jesus is the anointed one. So identity marker of Old Testament priests, anointed. Jesus is anointed as well. But before I go on to the, the next point here, guarding and keeping God's people, any thoughts or questions there? Um, I was just thinking that, you know, whenever scripture talks about and uses like his full title, Jesus Christ, right. Christ obviously means anointed, anointed one. one. Yep. So we don't often think of that mm. in, in terms of a priestly way. Right, yeah, that's good. But you see that title frequently. Yeah, that's good. Yep. So Christ wasn't his last name. Yeah. Like I'm Desmond Gilmore, he's Jesus Christ. It's Jesus the Christ, the anointed one, yeah, yeah. which points back constantly to his. Yep, that, that's good. That's a good point. Any other thoughts? <clears throat> Okay, so looking at the next point there, guarding and keeping God's people. <clears throat> Jesus, uh, as a priest, um, identified uh, as a priest in uh, the priestly responsibilities, he was guarding and keeping God's people. He does this, one, by clearing the temple. Adam and Eve were given to guard the garden, to protect it, to keep it. We talked about that in earlier classes. Right, to uh, make sure the presence of the snake wasn't even in the serpent in, in the garden, to, to deal with him swiftly, um, to judge him and to put him out. The function of the Levites, uh, or to guard, uh, shamar, to serve, to work, uh, in the Hebrew, avad, in the temple. So the same language we see in Genesis for Adam and Eve, we see also of the Levites, to guard, to serve, to work in the temple. And we talked about that in earlier classes as well. <clears throat> Jesus fulfilled these functions in a limited way when he cleaned the temple. He drove out those people and things that profaned his father's house, that place of his uh, special presence. <clears throat> he drove them out. He made a whip of cords and drove out those things which profaned the temple. And Jesus' disciples connected Jesus' work with Psalm 69, 9. <clears throat> I'll go ahead and I'll read for us. Psalm 69, 9, which says, For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Remember, his uh, disciples have this sort of uh, this light bulb goes off and they proclaim this of Jesus, quoting from Psalm 99, uh, Psalm 69, 9, when, he's, when he drives them out of the temple. <clears throat> Jesus guarding and keeping God's people does this also because of his zeal for God. So he does it by cleaning the temple, and he also does it through his zeal for God. Jesus' zeal for the house of God alludes to 
uh, the fulfillment of his priestly role. Jesus clearing the temple was to purify it so that proper worship could be offered by God's people. Um, Think about in the Old Testament, uh, Phineas uh, can be seen as a type of Christ. Uh, When the Israelites engaged in idolatry and sexual immorality with the people of Moab, Phineas and his um, and his zeal says for the Lord, Phineas uh, rushes into the uh, tent of this Israelite and this uh, Moabite woman, and he he pierces them. He he strikes them. He pierces the man and the woman through with a spear. <clears throat> and this attack turned away the wrath of God from the people of Israel. Now, Numbers 20, 25 outlines this occasion for us. Numbers 25, I'll just read verse, verse 11 here. <clears throat> it says, Phineas, the son of Eliezer, son of Aaron, the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel and that he was jealous with my jealousy among them so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. <clears throat> now, it's, what's interesting about this is one that Phineas is, uh, he's applauded, so to speak, for his action taken here and the piercing through of this Israelite and this and, and this this Moabite woman, and it says that it's it's zeal. Now the basic meaning for here is uh, when he says jealousy here is, is is zeal. When the when the zeal is for what belongs to someone else, it's envy. If there's a zeal for something that belongs to someone else, it, it's envy. When the zeal is for what rightly belongs to a person, the meaning is jealousy in a positive sense. As Israel's husband, God is zealous for his people to be faithful to the covenant. Right? So you think about um, a husband and his, and his, his, his bride. <clears throat> if he's zealous for another man's bride, then he's, he's envious. That, that's what we see in the, in, the, in the Ten Commandments. Do not covet your neighbor's uh, property, their things, their, their wife. But if he's zealous for his own wife and he wants her for himself and it offends him that um, another man would approach his wife as if it's that man's wife, that's, that's a good godly jealousy. He wants what is his for himself. Right, when it comes down to God and his own glory and his people for himself, it's good, godly jealousy. God is never uh, envious or coveting. Um, when you see these type of actions taken, it's God uh, preserving his bride for himself and preserving his glory for himself. And so Jesus has this zeal for the house of God to purify it. And so he drives the money changes out of the temple. <clears throat> So Jesus guards and keeps his, uh, God's people through clearing the temple, through zeal for God, and through teaching the people as well. But Jesus guards and guard, he guarded and kept his disciples 
in specific ways during his earthly ministry. Jesus taught his disciples how the temple should properly function as a house of prayer. Let me have someone go to Mark eleven seventeen. Mark eleven seventeen. <clears throat> so we're thinking about uh, the fact that Jesus taught the people of God. <clears throat> he in- instructed them. So who's there? Mark eleven seventeen. Who wants to read that for us? Got it? Okay, go ahead. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. Right. Thank you. So he's teaching, he's instructing them and informing them about <clears throat> what the house of prayer ought to be and not be. All right, so there's, there's teaching happening there. Jesus taught daily in the temple during his final days in Jerusalem. Although Jesus' work on the cross would lead to a new temple community, he actually supported the temple work by sending cleansed lepers to the temple and by paying the temple tax, which he instructed his uh, disciples to do. So, So Jesus guards and keeps God's people, again, through clearing the temple, through his zeal for God, through teaching the people, and lastly, through praying for God's people. Through praying for God's people. <clears throat> when, I, when I leave the house, um, I'm sort of trying to put into my son these ideas about uh, being a man and growing into a young man. And Lord willing, one day he'll be a husband and a father. And I say, okay, little buddy, you're in charge. <laughs> Daddy's going out. You're the man of the house. What, what, what do you do as the man of the house? And we said. Three Ps. We, you protect, you provide for, and you pray. You protect, which means sometimes you got to put your dukes up <laughs> to protect your family, <laughs> in, in other words. Um, you provide for. We don't, we're, we're, not, we're not lazy men. We work when the groceries come from Instacart. Go to the door and get them. Mommy shouldn't have to ask you. And you pray. You, you pray for your family. You protect, you provide for, and you pray for your family. Jesus, as a, as a priest, <clears throat> guards the people also by praying for God's people. <clears throat> Another way that Jesus guarded them was, was in this way. Jesus had regular times of, of prayer. Luke 5.16 says, but he would withdraw to desolate places to pray. You see this throughout the life of, 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 of Jesus in his ministry, constant prayer. Luke 22.31, it says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And then Jesus also prays for the ones given to him by the Father. In John 17, 19, he says, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me for they are yours. So you, the uh, subheader for this, if you look in your Bible for that passage, probably says Jesus' high priestly prayer or Jesus' uh, priestly prayer. And it's interesting here that he's not simply praying for the disciples in front of him, but he's praying for all of his disciples. He's praying for us. Any, any true believer 
and Christ. He's interceding for them. And so Jesus is, he clears the temple, has a zeal for God, teaches the people, and he prays for, he prays for the people as well. Next section there. <clears throat> Jesus is superior to the Old Testament priests. This is the good stuff. Hebrews. <clears throat> his superiority over the earthly priests is demonstrated in his sinless humanity and in his deity. In his sinless humanity and in his deity, which we <clears throat> talked about a little. Jesus is a human being like the other priests. He learned obedience through what he suffered. Hebrews 5, 7 to 8. He learned obedience through what he suffered. It says, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplication and loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. <clears throat> Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Is it, a, is it a mystery that the Son of God can learn obedience? <clears throat> you know, you think, well, he's, he's God. He doesn't, he doesn't have to learn, does he? He's, he's omniscient, all-knowing. He doesn't have to acquire knowledge, right? There's this interesting sort of situation here, that this language that he learns obedience. And so what, what is it, what, what is scripture referring to when it says that Christ learned obedience? Well, it's speaking of Jesus and his human nature. So when the Bible uses a certain language about Jesus, it's helpful to have categories. Um, and it's not always um, super clear, but it's helpful to have categories like uh, learned obedience and uh, is that is that speaking is the Bible speaking or attributing that to his divine nature or his human nature? Um, we know that uh, God as divine doesn't doesn't learn, so it must be his his human nature. Right, so he learned obedience through what he suffered. He was tempted in every way that human beings are tempted, that we are tempted, but did not sin. Jesus, like the high priest of the Old Testament, had to be appointed for, his, for this work of high priest. Now, two Old Testament passages support this appointing. Uh, someone go to Psalm 2-7, and then someone else go to Psalm 110-4. Who wants Psalm 2-7? Uh, Barani, and then Psalm 110-4. All, right. um, all right, so 1 Psalm 2-7. Now, we're thinking about Jesus needing to be appointed just as the Old Testament priest would have been appointed to the office. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have Okay. And then um, read, read verse 8 as well, Dan. <clears throat> Okay, and then Psalm 110 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Okay. So Jesus is appointed, right? We're checking off the identity markers of a priest. 
Um, Jesus is appointed just like the Old Testament priest would have been appointed. <clears throat> but he's appointed forever after the order of Melchizedek, this uh, mysterious figure again. Now, who is Melchizedek? Right? He's a really mysterious figure. We don't know a whole lot about him, but we do know some things about, about him. After Abraham defeated, really, a, a confederation of kings and rescued Lot, he was met by Melchizedek, king of Salem and the priest of the Most High God. Melchizedek blesses Abraham, and Abraham gave him a tenth of the spoils of his victory. Melchizedek is a mysterious figure, but he meets with, with Abraham in Genesis 14, and then he sort of disappears. Genesis 14, turn there, Genesis 14, 18 to 20. Someone, if you wouldn't mind reading those verses for us, 18 to 20 in Genesis 14. This uh, Melchizedek figure, really, as mysteriously as he showed up, he, he disappeared. But, it, but we know from Scripture that Melchizedek and Abraham, Abram worshipped the same God. Both used the name God Most High in 19 and 20 and verse 22. Melchizedek is presented as a type of Christ. <clears throat> he is not identified with the Son of God but he resembles the Son of God. <clears throat> we see that in Hebrews 7.3. The name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. And he was also king of peace based on the name of the city, uh, Salem, over which he ruled. So as king of righteousness and king of peace, he was a type of Christ, a messianic priest king. Now turn over to, to Hebrews, <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7, I'm just going to read verses 1 through 3 here. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the son of God, he continues a priest forever. It's really interesting. And Hebrews goes on to say more about Melchizedek, but the greatest or the greatness of Melchizedek over Abraham is shown in two ways. First, Melchizedek blessed Abraham. The inferior party is blessed by the superior party. You see that in Hebrews 7, 7. 
that makes Melchizedek the superior party. Second, Abraham put a tithe uh, or paid a tithe from the spoils of victory to Melchizedek. The person who received tithes is superior to the person who pays them. The author of Hebrews is laying this foundation that argues for the necessity of the change in the priesthood. He continues that argument by showing the deficiencies of the Levitical priesthood in Hebrews 7, 11 to 22. A change of priesthood was needed because perfection had not been attained under the Levitical priests. Otherwise, there would not be a need for another priest after the order of Melchizedek, this priest who is forever or eternal, no beginning, no end, um, and the likeness or resemblance of the Son of God. So just really interesting language that the writer of Hebrews brings out for us there. Now, let's consider the benefits of Christ's priesthood. The superior nature of the priesthood according to the order of Melchizedek is demonstrated by its uh, its establishment by an oath. Its establishment by an oath. The priesthood of Aaron and his sons was enacted by a statute. Right? One a statute, one an oath. Uh, for the sake of time, I'll just give you the, the verses. Uh, the priesthood of Aaron enacted by a statute, uh, Exodus 29, 9. And the uh, priesthood, according to the order of Melchizedek, demonstrated, was established by an oath, Psalm 110, 4. <clears throat> the oath is, exa- is actually what sets the appointment of Christ as priest apart from the, the, the Levites or the, the Levitical priest and makes him the guarantor of a better covenant. Hebrews 7, 22. <clears throat> I'll start at verse uh, 20. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. The Bible identifies that as an oath. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. So even the establishment of his priesthood is superior because it's by an oath as opposed to a statute. Um, The priesthood and the Mosaic covenant cannot bring about perfection. The service of Christ as priest is better than the service of the Old Testament priest because he is of permanence. He's a permanent priest and he's not impacted by death. This implies that he is always able to make intercession for his people and that he is able to save them completely. Hebrews 7, 23 to 25. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. So they couldn't continue. They couldn't um, uh, continue to offer service on behalf of the people because they died. They got old, they died. Or for, for one, some reason or another, they died. The former priests were many in number, but were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, Christ, holds priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession 
for them. All right, so there's a, a permanence to Christ's priesthood. Hebrews 10, 11 to 14 says that the priests stand daily at this service. Christ could never have accomplished this work of complete salvation if he had been a priest in the line of Aaron serving in the earthly tabernacle. For eternal redemption to be secured, Christ had to be a priest according to the order of the eternal priest, Melchizedek. Those priests stood daily in the temple. Um, and it's, it's interesting the language in Hebrews 10, where it says the priests, <clears throat> they stand daily at the service, offering repeatedly the same offerings, which can never take away sin. But Christ had offered for all time a single sin uh, or a single sacrifice for sins. He sat down at the right hand of God. So these priests, they stand daily offering. Christ offers once and then sits down. It's pointing to the completion of, of the work, the satisfaction of the work, right? He offers, he sits down, it is, it is done. The role of the... <clears throat> okay, one more, one more section here, and then I'll open it up for maybe a couple of questions. Lastly, um, Christ's priests uh, blessing the people of God. The role of priest included blessing the people of God, uh, just as Melchizedek blessed Abraham and the priest blessed the people of God. So uh, Christ blesses his disciples at his ascension. Um, we see that in Luke 24, 50. He raised his hands and he blesses them as he ascends. As the ascendant Lord, Jesus continues his ministry on behalf of his people. Christ is our advocate. See that in 1 John 2, 1. He pleads for the believer's cause with the Father in heaven against the false accusations brought against God's people. And through the Holy Spirit, believers are strengthened to carry out the ministry in this world. Christ, even today, continues to pray for the spiritual needs of his people, for their protection, for their preservation, for their faith, that it would not fail, so that uh, we will one day participate and his victory. So Christ, again, although it's not explicitly mentioned prior to his resurrection, that he's, he's priest, when we look at the life of Christ and we examine it and we compare it to Old Testament priests, from the anointing to the blessing of God's people to the oath um, over the, the statue, <clears throat> these things highlight and bring out Christ as a priest, not just a priest, but a sufficient, faithful, eternal priest. Um, for God's people. And so there's a lot there for the sake of time. I tried to uh, condense um, all that's there, but there's a lot there on Christ as, as a priest and a, and a sufficient priest for, for his people. So I think we have uh, well, a minute over. Let me take a couple of questions or thoughts and then I'll close out. Testament practice, right? 
Yeah. But he himself, who is the reality of all this, yeah. took the temple seriously. This is the house of prayer. Right. Right. Uh, you didn't brush it like, oh, that's the pastor. Right. Oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pass that later on. <laughs> Let them do whatever they want to do there. Yeah. yeah. But he took it seriously. Yep. You know, for, for us, Old Testament, you know, the Bible says uh, any iota hmm. of these commandments, you know, what was the word that he used there? A hmm. very condemning word. Hmm. Right? So that, that kind of struck me. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Yep. Even knowing that his temple would be destroyed and raised, right. speaking of himself, he still yep, <clears throat> cleansed with a zeal. With a zeal. With a zeal. Uh, a holy jealousy of the temple of God. Yeah, that's good. Any other thoughts? Well, I hope this uh, this class has, has helped us just with that category of priest when we think about Christ. Uh, just to maybe just add a little more um, biblical data to that 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 category to help us um, to be thankful in our worship that we do have a high priest um, who is uh, able to sympathize with our weaknesses, tempted in every way we are yet without sin. Who even now, um, as we prepare to go in and worship um, with the saints, heaven saints on earth intercedes for us. Um, he's a very present help in time of need. So I pray that this <clears throat> encourages and stirs worship, um, not just information, but the information to the end of, of worship to uh, uh, be able to uh, identify and draw out more of Christ's uh, holy features, which stirs us to adoration. So let me pray for us and we'll, we'll close out. Mm-hmm. <clears throat>